0: is the day. It is Tuesday, October the 8th, 2019. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Um, what gets your adrenaline pumping? <clears throat> because I had a, an adrenaline pumping experience this morning, and I'm wondering what gets your adrenaline going. Um, so normally, I mean, I get up four-ish, and, um, you know, I'm I'm... I've obviously thought in advance since our guests are always lined up in advance because Paul Perot does such an excellent job putting the show together. Um, but, you know, in the morning, I make sure that there's nothing that has happened overnight that I think we need to address or cover. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I do some other things and I spend my I have my quiet time. And, and then, you know, normally about like 20 till I I uh, I put on whatever shoes I feel are necessary to walk across the yard to my uh, this, this radio studio that my husband graciously built me. And normally between the house and what we call the she shed or the radio shack, <clears throat> there's only grass. I mean, the dog is, you know, she's coming along cause she's all excited cause someone else is up. Uh, but it's really dark now <clears throat> at that time of, of the, I will say day. And so this morning, so there's normally just grass. At one at one other point in time there was this really like totally jet black horse that is a that is a different story for a different day that was adrenaline pumping but today i I got just within a few feet of the she shed and i now remember you kind of have to visualize this because I am in one hand I have my laptop and my notes for the show and in the other hand, I have my coffee in today the pocket of my robe I have my phone um and so uh, I don't have a flashlight or any other such illuminating device in my hand or on my head, although maybe starting tomorrow I'm going to wear a headlamp. I don't know. Um, so I'm within a few feet, and all of a sudden I realize there is something substantial between me and the she shed, but I can't see it. I can't actually <laughs> I can't make out what it is. I can just tell there's something there, and it's really big. And I scream, not like loud scream, because I think I am one of those people that has like a stifled fear scream. But I will tell you, it definitely got my adrenaline pumping. It also um, had the effect of I I did not stabilize my coffee holding hand during the screaming process. And so um, most of my coffee is now in the pocket of my robe uh, or, you know, uh, in that space where there where the phone was, which I then, of course, snatched out and Tried to find the flashlight app, which I just have to tell you should now be on the front screen of my phone because it took me entirely. Had it been something alive, I would be in serious trouble. Right, it, this giant inanimate object. I finally decided it's not moving, so it is inanimate. Um, but it's so dark, I literally could not see anything. And and so once I finally got the flashlight on, I realized that my husband had parked the like the four x four, which is like a it's uh you know it's a it's a farm. It's a, it's a farm vehicle. He had parked it just outside of the she shed. Why? I, I can't remember uh, why that might have happened yesterday. But um, anyway, I'm here. You're here. My adrenaline is pumping. And Tommy Binion is uh, uh, waiting in the wings. So, Tommy, I am full of energy. I can't wait to have you on. Tommy Binion and I are going to c- talk across some of the headline news of the day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. What got your dr- adrenaline pumping today? We'll be right back.
1: I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's
0: Tommy Binion is back with us from the Daily Signal of the Heritage Foundation. You can check it out at DailySignal.com. Tommy, welcome back.
2: Good morning. It's great to be with you. I have spent the commercial break trying to pump my energy levels up to meet yours, so (laughs) I'm ready to go.
0: All of my coffee is on the outside today, so yeah. Uh, Maybe if you have coffee on the inside, you're of equal uh, adrenaline. Hey, the economy, when we think about um, elections and when we think about how good we feel about how things are going... Uh, the economy on, you know, on a global scale or even on a national scale actually does not matter to us as much as the economy in our own home. We all become home economists when, uh, when we start talking about how we feel about the economy. The median – the U.S. median household income has, uh, has hit a record high, and so my guess is people are feeling pretty good. T- t- talk with us about this.
2: Yeah, so this is a statistic put out by the Census Bureau on an annual basis. Um, And it turns out that um, the median family income has risen faster under President Trump than under the last two presidents. So in two and a half years of President Trump, we have jumped up in this metric by $4,000. Under President Obama, we only jumped up under this metric in his entire eight years by $1,000. So we're, um, we are, uh, we're doing excellent. Uh, you know, what this translates to on an individual level is probably you got a raise or a promotion or a new job that pays you more. So when, when, when that is happening throughout the economy, because we have a tight labor market, low unemployment and, and good economic growth, People's circumstances are improving, and when you average that out over all of us Americans, you see a pretty dramatic jump over two and a half years, and, and that's a very good thing. And I'll just connect this to one other piece. We all got a tax cut under President Trump, a one or $2,000 tax cut. So each of our families, our income went up by $4,000, and our tax bill went down by 1000 or two dollars so we're all five or six thousand dollars—not you know, each and every one of us—but on average, we are five or six thousand dollars better than we were before President Trump took office. That is a tremendous story for the president to be able to tell.
0: This article is interesting. I'm—I'm I'm reading it from um, the Washington Examiner, but other other media outlets have reported on this as well. This—you uh, know—this note that the. Median income has hit a record low in 2018 and poverty in America declined. It's interesting, Tommy, as you read through this, median U.S. household income reached $63,200 in 2018, the highest figure on record. New data released on Tuesday by the Census Bureau, as you mentioned. Um, I also thought that the drop in the poverty percentage is significant because it's not only are, you know, is the middle class feeling Feeling pretty good. Which, when we talk about median income, we are literally talking about those of us right in the middle, right? Um, and so, not only is the middle class feeling a little bit better about what's in their pocket, um, the the percentage of Americans live, living below the poverty line uh, has dropped to eleven point eight percent. Now, that still sounds tragically high to me. In you know, in the richest country in the world in all of human history, the United States of America, to have nearly 12 percent of the population or 38.1 million people living in poverty. You and I both know a lot of those are kids, um, you know, single moms with kids. And so I, th- I think that when we think about compassion and we think about opportunities for those of us who are feeling a little more economically stable or feeling good, there's still opportunity for us to be helping our neighbors who um, who are not uh, experiencing maybe the the most of the flourishing uh, right now. So I just wanted to add that as a little caveat. I would love to have a conversation with you about what's happening at the Supreme Court. Your colleague, uh, Ryan Anderson, has a couple of pieces. One of them is posted at DailySignal.com. Um, and and what what I would, I would just love for you to address the the conversation. I am hearing it reported in the news as these are cases about discrimination. I would like to hear them described as cases related to the preservation of Uh, individual religious liberty. But help me understand what's going on um, in this, not just contest of of words, but contest of ideas.
2: Sure. So the Supreme Court began its October session yesterday. And in this session, they're going to hear um, a collection of cases that are related to Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This is is a bill that says um, you can't lose out on a job Simply because of your race, or simply because of your sex. So if if um, if you are a woman or a man, and you apply for a job, you don't, you know, if you are discriminated on the basis of sex, that is illegal under the Civil Rights Act. Okay, so that's been the law of the land for quite some time, and we're all very familiar with it. Well, the sexual orientation and gender identity activists have been trying to change that law. To say that you can 't be discriminated against because of your sexual orientation or because of your gender identity, but of course there are there are uh, religious people uh, believers who uh, think that that would be a violation of their conscience to uh, employ people in certain circumstances. so you can imagine potentially a, a principal at a Christian school not wanting to hire um, you know a, 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 a transgender teacher. you can imagine religious reasons. Um, for uh, for this, but the question in front of the Supreme Court isn't really: is this discrimination or is this protection of the First Amendment right to uh, your religious beliefs? This is the question: is did the 1964 Civil Rights Act protect it, or did it just protect sex? Because the argument is that in that law, where it says you cannot be discriminated against on the basis of sex. They're arguing that that also includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, that is a novel legal theory, but of course, it's a dramatic stretch of the truth. That is obviously not what is, was intended by Congress 50 years ago. Um, and so the, the court will have to, I, I believe, view that narrow interpretation of the law. You, you, you can't decide a law means something completely different by language or by interpretation 50 years later, you you must interpret the law as it was written, as it was enacted. Indeed, people have been trying to change that law to accomplish this end, so then to go back and argue in front of the Supreme Court that actually the law protected this all along um, is, is suspect in my view. All
0: right. So um, one of the things that uh, Tommy leaps leaps to my memory is is the question and conversation during the Clinton impeachment uh, process about the definition of sex um, and what is is. And I think that we have, as a culture, arrived at the place where we um, are so confused not only about sex as an act, but sex as uh, a defined reality of who we are as male and female. And so it's an interesting contemporary conversation that uh, weaves together many threads of what's happening in our culture today. Tommy Binion and I are gonna be right back. We are gonna talk about a number of things. One of the things we're gonna talk about is whether or not nuclear energy is dangerous or whether or not uh, it's you know potentially a a pretty safe way to move forward in terms of uh, the way that we provide for ourselves and one another the energy we need to do what we want to do. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now with Tommy Binion from The Daily Signal. You can check out what we're talking about at DailySignal.com. Um, all right, let's let's uh, let's talk about the Green New Deal, and let's talk about nuclear power and nuclear energy. Um uh, is it dangerous, as the Green New Deal would have us believe, or, you know, is it is it part of sort of the constellation of things that we need to be thinking about in terms of energy solutions?
2: Yeah, it's definitely part of the constellation of things we need to be thinking about in terms of energy solutions. Uh, you know, there there is a really key fact that the Green New Deal ignores, which is that we human beings rely on energy. We must have it We, as the population grows, as, uh, as technology advances. We need more and more energy, not for silly or superfluous things, but for life-sustaining things. Energy uh, in the form of electricity or any other form is extraordinarily important to human flourishing. We need it. Uh, we cannot meet the energy needs without uh, many sources of energy, and one of those is nuclear energy. And of course, you know, nuclear energy suffers from what I would call, uh, and what my colleagues at Heritage would call, bad PR. Um, you know, people get concerned about radiation being emitted. They get concerned about um, big accidents. You know, like what happened in Chernobyl, um, and and they get concerned about where the nuclear waste is going to go. But frankly, all of these. Are 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 overblown concerns. Um, you may not know it, but uh, we get about 19% of our energy in the United States today from nuclear energy. Across the globe, we've got 444 nuclear power plants um, in uh, in service today. So this is already part of our lives. It's already part of the mix we're receiving, and and it's it is it is a perfectly safe energy source. But, but my point is more than that it's safe, it's that it's entirely necessary. Uh, if, if, if we're and, and by the way, it's clean. Uh, it's way more efficient in terms of the space use than uh, wind, solar, hydropower. These things take up tremendous swaths of the Earth. Nuclear energy uh, is way more efficient on those grounds. So I think we need to be honest about energy sources and And, as we consider proposals like the Green New Deal, which you know my view on is entirely too radical, we need to be honest about our need for energy and how much we are going to need, and not pretend that we can change our lifestyles and the economy to adapt to live without energy. We just can't do it
0: so i uh, I went through an exercise with uh, my fourteen and sixteen year old <clears throat> on this topic. And what we were doing was we were trying to, we were just made a little exercise of, okay, uh, how long do you think we could live? Like, li- actually live. Not how long could you, could you stand it, but how long could you actually live without electricity? And, um, uh, you know, it starts with I would be inconvenienced by all of the digital devices that, you know, that aren't going to work anymore. But I would pretty quickly care about um, being able to refuel my car right, because those pumps are all electric now, um, or the ability to pay for something, which is now mostly by a card that requires a, a machine that has, is powered by electricity. Uh, my refrigerator would pretty quickly, um, you know, things in there and would go rancid. And so uh, my ability to eat would suddenly become dependent on, on sources uh, of maybe what is in my pantry. Um, and then could I build a fire and those kinds of things, like, right, to cook my food, Um, obviously, if you live in a more urban setting than we do, that's not even going to be a real option. Um, Your water is not going to flow if you live on a city water system. Um, That's not going to work because those pumps are uh, powered by electricity. And so when we think about the grinding halt that we would find ourselves in if power were disrupted for any long period of time, and people experience this you know, let's say there's a snowstorm or something like that, they rely on backup generators. I mean, if you live in a place where there is extreme weather and you know it um, and you can predict it with, a, you know, with a regular pattern like snow in Minnesota, then you have, you know, alternate plans for if the power goes out. But there's there's just lots of, uh, lots of people, Tommy, who just assume the power is always going to work and they don't really think about all of the um, parts of our lives that are energy-dependent. And so when we talk about becoming energy dependent as a country, we're we're not just talking about, um, you know, our relationships globally. We're actually talking about the sustainability of our lifestyle now uh, as individuals. So I I just appreciate the the breadth of conversations that you and I get to have. And this one, you know, piqued my interest this morning. So thanks for entertaining it.
2: You bet. I'm happy to do it. Carmen, I also wanted to say how impressed I was that you were able to link A Supreme Court case about the Civil Rights Act today to the Bill Clinton impeachment. I thought that was extraordinary. Good job on that.
0: Dude, I spilled my coffee all over myself this morning. So (laughs) I I have all kinds of ideas about a number of things. Hey, thank you so much again for joining us. That's Tommy Binion from The Daily Signal. You can check out what he's working on at DailySignal.com. Check out what Heritage is up to at Heritage.org. We'll be right back. So a listener asked a question in relationship to uh, the conversation about the Green New Deal. Uh, The question was, uh, the Green New Deal isn't calling for zero energy use, is it? Well, no. Um, I was talking with our kids about where our power comes from, how dependent we are upon it. Uh, Because we live in Tennessee, actually much of our power is generated by the flow of water through the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, but we also have nuclear energy here in the state as well as coal-fired plants. The Green New Deal proposes a reduction in our household use, uh, transportation, agriculture, manufacturing sectors. The Their goal, the goal of the Green New Deal is to um, eliminate the use of coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, and internal combustion engines. And so, if you think about all of the places and spaces where we use all of that, if they want to eliminate nuclear, which was the conversation that I I just picked that out of the hat because I feel like I know the arguments against the others. Um, but if you also eliminate nuclear as an option, you're you're literally down to wind um, and uh, and water. I mean, pretty much. And we we don't and solar. We're not we're not there yet in terms of the technology or the uh, or the spread of those. Um, technologies in a way that could capture enough energy from natural renewable sources, wind, solar, and uh, water. And then we've got folks arguing that you can't actually put these water uh, plants on any more, you know, these uh, energy turbines on rivers, because that's disruptive to the wildlife and those kinds of things. And people don't want big windmills out in the ocean. And the list is kind of long. And so um, the environmental protection people related to animals, uh, are, necess- are not necessarily uh, all up to speed with the Green New Deal people on how all of that would happen. So that's why I just thought I would surface it because it's a, it's a good conversation for us to have uh, in the culture today. All right. So uh, when we come back, I'm going to be talking with, uh, you remember him, Per Eurt from the Clapham Institute. He lives in Sweden. It's already snowing there. That's not the subject of our conversation, but mm, that'll be my tease. We'll be right back.
3: When I volunteer to help others, I am always surprised when I walk away feeling like I'm the one who's gained from the experience. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, it really amazes me what happens when I share my time and my talents with others. I meet people who are different than me, and I experience the beauty and vast creativity of God. I'm moved by the love and gratitude that I'm able to give and receive. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. The more you give, the more you receive. The Bible has a lot to say about this. We constantly see how those who are generous to others receive so much more in return. Doesn't this verse from Proverbs sum it up nicely? One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds, but comes to poverty. As a Christian, you're called to share the gifts God has given you, and you'll gain so much more than you give.
0: Greta Thunberg is in the news again this morning, actually for a number of reasons. Uh, There is a teacher in Waterloo, Iowa, who is not in school today for uh, messages posted about her on a Facebook page. Uh, The city of Rome is reeling as a a effigy uh, of Greta was hung from a bridge in Rome yesterday. Um, And she's meeting today. In North Dakota, with members of Paul, remind me, what's the name of the tribe? I believe the Standing Rock, Standing Rock Tribe, uh, in Sioux Falls. Yeah. So um, uh, about oil pipelines across Native lands, Mm -hmm. and so we uh, we have this very young person uh, in the news. She is she is we've talked about her before. She is a 15 year old Swedish climate activist. Uh, She was platformed at the UN just last week. And now she has a new advocate in Professor Peter Singer from Princeton, uh, who actually thinks that, you know, she is uh, just a magnificent, magnificent example of what we should all become. Uh, Per Uert from the Clapham Institute in Sweden is here to talk about how he is responsible for all of this. Per, welcome. (laughs)
1: <laughs> good good morning, good morning, Carmen. <laughs> Great to be with you. It's it's good quite morning. a strange title for me to 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 feel that I may be partly responsible for this. There are other people that are obviously more responsible, or or to be praised, if you think that Giliath <laughs> is a is a fantastic role model. But uh, I, it turned out that I may have had some part of it.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, first of all, let's remind people what the Clapham Institute is. And then, you know, let's be quick because sometimes uh, our sarcasm does not translate. Uh, neither <laughs> Perin nor I are are advocating Greta Thunberg's um, approach to all of this, um, nor are we suggesting that the way in which I perceive at least her to be used by um, uh, adults right now, um, This this frankly very fragile young woman being used in a really dramatic way, Um, by adults who want to accomplish something. So remind us what the Clapham Institute is and then tell us why, you know, you may have inspired Greta Thunberg.
1: Yeah, Uh, we are Sweden's uh, dominating Christian think tank and research institute, working all over the field, trying to be a Christian biblical voice in in society. And uh, the background for this particular situation is that I began my career as author by writing school books. Uh, And the first one, which has been most spread in Sweden, is a a school book in uh, social science for junior high school. And uh, before Greta became the international star that that she is, um, she she began demonstrating alone outside Swedish parliament and and got a bit of media coverage for it. And just a couple of months ago, I noticed from from these very early uh, pictures of her outside parliament, she was sitting flickering through her school book. (laughs) and when i looked closer i figured wait wait a minute that's my book <laughs> 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 which felt a bit crazy uh, and, and the particular chapter uh, that i was thinking about was w- we were three co-authors for this book and the, the cha- one of the chapters that i wrote was about how to influence society and the, the illustration for this chapter is a young girl qu- quite in enraged who is travelling by train to a uh, un summit demonstrating And that's pretty much what what she's doing. (laughs) So it felt a bit bit strange.
0: So, um, Per, let's uh, help us understand um, maybe the educational process in Sweden a little bit. Take us into the the kind of upbringing upbringing that this uh, that this girl has had, the kind of access that she has had. Um, it, it's quite a privilege to be doing what she's doing. So you know, let's just talk a little bit about how does she have all the time and money to do all of this?
1: Yeah, uh, there are obviously environmental activists. Pro- most probably, some of them with, with a good heart uh, uh, that are behind this. Her mother is a well-known opera singer in Sweden and already well-known, uh, and she, she has a lot of help from her family, I, I guess. Uh, The the thing is that Sweden being a very secular individualistic uh, society and nation, that is part of the the cultural background that has brought the the Greta phenomenon. Uh, Working for the environment is uh, obviously important uh, and and the climate is important. But the background and the the, the driving forces behind this scenery uh, makes me a bit hesitant. Sure.
0: Um, I'm wondering there in Sweden, um, are there the kinds of reactions and responses uh, to her that we're seeing in in other places? I mean, obviously, we want to we want to condemn the kind of response um, of the individual who posted on Facebook, um, you know, that something that was clearly a threat. Um, or mm. this, you know, certainly this threatening imagery of an effigy uh, hanging from a bridge. We, we, mm. we absolutely, we condemn this. There's just no question about that. I'm wondering there in Sweden, it, it, what, if any, is the reaction and response to uh, to her as this international, um, you know, figure?
1: I guess it's pretty much a miniature of, of the international re- reactions, uh, and that's a problem, I think, with with this movement. Uh, the environment is an important topic, but Greta has become this this model that is either treated as a saint who who is immaculate, who is perfect, or as just a, a mad child uh, used by by adults. Uh, mm. I think that there needs to be a balance, a, a grown up, mature uh, reaction to to mm.
0: Agreed um the, we we have we noted yesterday that the the church in sweden now a church in sweden not the church in sweden right has uh, acknowledged uh, they believe that she's a you know a successor to jesus so you know the yeah. language yeah. the language is pretty strong hey i want to yeah, ask yeah. you about another um another story out of sweden if i may across our news headlines this morning is a swedish headline Um, And so uh, if you if you have not read this yet or don't know about it, we can always go to the break and you and I can read it then. But Sweden's king, first of all, I'll just admit to you, I didn't know you had a king. Um, Sweden's king has stripped five of his grandchildren of their royal titles. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know you had a king and I didn't know that you could take away the titles of people who were born into royalty.
1: I, I guess that you can't make all the people in the royal family hereditary in the long run, but uh, I guess they have a procedure for it. I haven't read Interesting. it, Interesting.
0: Totally fascinating, right? Well, so this, this is what the rest of the world knows about Sweden today. There's a little headline <laughs> for you. All right. We're going to be right back with uh, Per Uart, and um, and he is with the Clapham Institute. It is Sweden's premier Christian think tank and worldview ministry, and we love having conversations with him from time to time, even on days when it is now snowing in Stockholm. We'll be right back.
1: Oh, the weather
3: outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful.
0: Returning to my conversation with Per Ewart from the Clapham Institute um I want to I want to return a pair to this piece that you have posted at acton.org. I may have inspired yeah. Greta Thunberg whose name you you pronounce in a clearly more beautiful way than I do. <laughs> um and here's what you would like to tell her. Um I'm 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 picking up in this piece um uh, on this on this reality that the climate and the environment are important topics. They're important topics mm-hmm. to Christians. We recognize the you know our stewardship concern. Um Precisely. But you say yeah you say their solutions not found in panic but in well conceived plans um these two allegations that uh this young activist continues to make um is that politicians do nothing they are do nothing people um and that capitalism uh, the capitalist system is really the problem can you answer hmm. those uh answer those two allegations
1: yeah because it, it's untrue that politicians do nothing. Uh, there are nations where politicians do too little but the, these are mostly for instance China, India other nations that have a large coal industry uh, which have much more impact than, than the small perhaps important uh, things that we do in other, other parts but uh, politicians in the western world they do things uh, and uh, apart apart from that the Entrepreneurs, good inventors with good ideas, are a good help that can help us to solve these problems, uh, or at least a lot of them. Uh, So I think the angle in this movement is slightly off, 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 off the goal, so to speak.
0: And then you make the observation that she has been, I don't know, touted, maybe uh, identified, called a modern prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, that she's uncompromising, that she challenges authority. Um, I don't see anything in, in her approach or her language that has any religious uh, and certainly not Christian or biblical framework. Would you describe her as a person operating completely out of a secular worldview?
1: Uh, I get that impression. I haven't heard her mm-hmm. or the movement around her talking about God as, as part of a solution or or a deity. Uh, but the, 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 the use of her as a prophet, and I think it, that, that's a very wide definition of, of the concept. She's definitely not an Old Testament prophet, because an Old Testament prophet claims that we need to turn, uh, turn back to God from our sins. And the only sin in in this movement is the inner worldless sin that we don't take care of, of the only world that we have and that by changing things in this world we can save ourselves and that's definitely not a biblical worldview
0: okay and then you say that um she made this concluding she used this concluding phrase at the end of her uh speech to the un and you say that it rings uncomfortable historical bells. The uh, mm. Her walk-off sentence, change is coming, whether you like it or not. What are the historical bells uh, that you think that rings?
1: It, it rings some kind of revolutionary bells from different areas in, in history. And these have very rarely have had good consequences. And I think there is a, a part of this movement that is... Uh, Uh, Well, it scares me and it should scare uh, society, the democratic society, because there is a kind of the end justifying the means. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is so important that we could pull back the checks and balances in in the democratic society because this calls for such a radical change. And if you saw, there was a huge text by Greta on the UN building uh, ending with everything has to change and it has to start today. I'm not sure that everything needs to change. That, that's more of a revolutionary worldview, which I find quite dangerous.
0: Oh, and it's, it's lovely in, uh, if you want to just consider it as an aspirational idea. But if you were going to bring it down to um, the everyday reality of the person, and you look at times in human history when literally everything mm. changed, you're going to talk about the collapse of the Roman Empire— and the many those. many hundreds of years that um people spent in darkness um, i mean we call it the dark ages for a reason and mm-hmm. and that 's not to say that there weren 't a lot of great uh things that happened in the context of the dark ages, but they for mm. most people, they were really dark and i and yeah. so i I do wonder whether or not she 's a student of history um and you know and and at her age whether or not she really has the capacity to um, to lead any further than she has already led. And I think that's Precisely. one of the things that your piece is getting to, that there need to be some yeah. adults who step
1: in. Yeah, because this is how a teenager reasons. A teenager mm-hmm. has a very black and white worldview. <laughs> in general, I have three teenagers at home, I know. <laughs> uh, but when a teenager sort of just explodes in, in opinions, there needs to be Uh, adults who are mature, and not just individual adults, but whole societies that sit down together and see, these are the real issues that we need to to combat. These are the real things that we need to change in order to to control this climate situation. And that's not just waving posters, you know, on Friday afternoon, and then going around the world on on holidays by airplanes, like many of these young Westerners actually do. Uh, So we need to have a more mature grip on this.
0: So as we encounter people in conversation, I mean, I I, you know this might not surprise you. I like actually go to places where people are demonstrating and protesting and try to have conversations with them Mm. around the periphery, and you know, just say, you know, okay, so tell me why you're here and what you're advocating for, Um, and if they've come from far away, I'll I will say, well, how did you get here? And Mm. and the answer, you know, the answer is almost always. They used some form of transportation that re- that created a much greater carbon footprint than um, than what they are going to eliminate by standing there with a poster, uh, you know, in, in front of an immovable, frankly, system in some cases. And so yeah. how the system is moved, how the system is really affected, I think, is where the adults need to step in and need to say, OK, I, I, I hear your frustration. I appreciate your passion. Um, Let's talk about how the system is changed and how how that does happen, Um, Mm. because you're not going to change it. I mean, if they if they imagine they're going to change it by revolution, which is what it sounds like, um, I'm hoping it's bloodless.
1: Yeah. And, and if you look at the Soviet Union system, that was rarely or, or not, not very good for the environment, to, to say the least. Uh, and I think I, I actually we are all in some way somewhat hypocritical in our lives. But I think I have some credibility in talking about these issues because I, I get all my energy to, to the heating of the house, to the electricity and to charging to my electric car from, from solar power. I have a solar facility on my roof. Uh, so there are things that ordinary people can do to reduce their their carbon footprint and and, and and all this. And there are things that entire nations may do. But it takes investments. It takes a lot of courage to do it. But it can be done.
0: Investments, innovation, um, ingenuity, imagination, mm-hmm. and then the application of resources to that, which you know is capitalism. That's actually what capitalism is. If you just take all of those things and put them together and advance the common good, not just for the individual, but for everyone. I mean, that's uh, yeah. that that is you know, capitalism at its best. Redeem- redeemed capitalism. That's what it yeah. looks like. OK, so um, now this leads me to ask this question. When it snows, um, <laughs> do you have to like go up there and sweep off your solar panels? Like, how does that
1: work? They sort of shut down during the during the winter season. So I I get more than 90 percent of my energy during the summer months.
0: Interesting. Okay, see, that's totally fascinating. I I would not. Okay, And then how much surface area um, do you have in solar uh, in order to provide for the electricity for your home?
1: I, I have 45 square meters of, of solar panels. It doesn't get me all the energy to my house, but the energy that I buy from my electronics, uh, electricity oh, company right. is based on solar, solar power as well. So I think Very I have some clear. credibility in saying that, uh, that, that need to, we need to see both sides here. We can't jump into one of the two ditches. We need to, to stay on the road and move forward in a wise way.
0: I want somebody to really get working on geothermal. I really feel like there's an untapped resource literally under our feet, but it's too no. expensive for uh, most people to figure out how to use. Okay, uh, Pear, thank you so much uh, for joining us again today. Um, thank you for educating kids. Thank you for writing textbooks. Thank you for what you do at the Clapham Institute and for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Have a blessed day. We'll be right you back. too.
0: So, this is uh, starting tonight at sundown, Yom Kippur, 24 hours uh, essentially of um, the most significant holiday on the Jewish calendar. It is the Day of Atonement, Uh, it's an emphasis and focus on repentance. And it concludes with a celebration, the walk off of, of which is next year in Jerusalem. I think that for Christians, this is a wonderful opportunity to engage in conversations about our understanding of the atonement. What we understand to have happened at the cross, um, and and what we understand repentance to look like, and and why Jerusalem is certainly significant to us. Um, but next year in Jerusalem is not our uh, not the cry of our hearts, uh, and and so I think that uh, as Christians engaging in the conversation of the day, if you have Jewish colleagues who are uh, who will not be at work during the day tomorrow. Uh, today is the day to actually talk with them about their Yom Kippur uh, celebrations, and maybe even if you've got the evening free uh, tonight, go with a Jewish neighbor or a Jewish colleague to a Yom Kippur celebration. It's a wonderful opportunity to to get an insight into what our neighbors are doing, how they're worshiping, what they're thinking, and imagine the conversations that you might have in the days and weeks and months ahead about the topic of atonement and how uh, God actually resolves that concern at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBurge. We will be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.